You've heard the music. Now hear the story. From director Frank Marshall, HBO's new documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Chronicles the highs and lows of brothers Barry, Maurice, and Robin Gibb, and the evolution of their prolific career as the Bee Gees. Through interviews and never-before-seen footage, discover how they navigated the ever-changing music industry and complex dynamics of family and fame. Watch it now on HBO and HBO Max. Hi, everyone. It's Michael Nesmith on the Pantheon Podcast. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon Podcast. Music, culture, conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. This is Pamela DeBar's pajama party, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Slip your pajamas on. I am the world's most famous groupie, and I'll, I'll tell you again what a groupie means. It's just the lover of music, someone who loves the music and wants to be around the people who make it. That's all it is. You know, it's the inspiration. It's, it's the glory of music and the sharing of the souls. That's what a groupie is. And um, my podcast and many others are part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. So we are up to 33 shows now. Isn't that amazing? So tune in and you're going to dig them all. There's something for everybody. And tell friends because that's very important to us that, you know, we get more people listening so you can hear all the fabulous stories we all have to tell. Um, a little bit about me. I do rock and roll tours of Hollywood and uh, all the old haunts from my book, I'm with the Band. And um, you can find out all that stuff about me at PamelaDebar.com, my my column at pleasekillme.com a lot of stories that weren't in my books or I fleshed a lot of them out shall we say and um, I'd like to introduce my amazing guest today he's a very dear old friend he was my publicist for I'm with the band and my ex-husband Michael for a while and he has been the publicist for Ozzy and Bowie and Kiss and Tom Petty and I mean it's endless and he's got some incredible stories so let's welcome my dear friend, Mitch Snyder. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus in America too. She's a good girl, is crazy about Elvis, loves horses and her boyfriend too. It's a long day Living in Reseda There's a freeway Running through the yard And I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For breaking her heart
dolls. I am sitting here in my lovely pad in my pajamas with my dear longtime friend, Mitch Snyder of SRO. Now explain to us what SRO is, Mitch. Well, the company <laughs> used to be called MSO for Mitch Snyder Organization. Yes. And my longtime uh, associate, Marcy Rondon, who started with me back in 1988 as uh, an assist, uh, maybe 89, as an assistant. And through the years, she got promoted to publicist, account executive, vice president. Uh, and it was just time for us to form a partnership. And we, you know, we finish each other's sentences. Uh -huh, I mean, uh -huh. she's, she's truly, you know, she's truly that person in my life. And she's really fantastic and knows how to work with top artists, knows how to not only publicize them, but run interference for them. And not in a way that's uh, like fascist, but <laughs> in a way that protects them. She's a doll. And artists yeah. really respond to that, uh, that talent she has. And she's also very much behind the scenes in a way that she doesn't insert herself into anything that, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Publicists are are usually very much behind the scenes. Often you aren't though. You're you're kind of right up front with your people. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's it's kind of got that way through the years because like people would want to interview me and hear stories. So I just kind of did interviews. So I just sort of somehow got to the front. And I think you know, Renee and I were always out. Um, Renee is my wife. Renee is amazingly wonderful wife. Thank you. And We're very good friends, aren't we, Mitch? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, yes, and we, um, Renee and I would go out on the party circuit. So mm -hmm. I would just somehow, my visibility would just start increasing. Yeah. Which, which just was a byproduct of just being out. And so, yeah, so that's like, so I guess my presence was, you know, felt definitely stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're like a celebrity publicist. No. I mean, you yourself. You know, it's, comparatively, it's, it's one of those things. I just like to have a good time, <laughs> and well, you love what you're doing. This is another thing always about Mitch that I've noticed. He loves what he's doing. It's not a business to him. It's a, it's it's life, you know. And he loves music. He writes music. He he's got a song in my ex boyfriend Jimmy Quill's movie. Don't you? What's that movie called again? Yeah, that's called Off the Record. Oh, yes, of course. And, How could uh, I forget that? We had a screening right here in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that, you know it's I'm really happy that you said that. It's very flattering. I love what I do. I love to create opportunities for musicians. I love to get them more respect. Mm -hmm. That's That's like a really big aspect of what I do. I was Tom Petty's publicist for 17 years, and he was always second-class citizen to Bruce Springsteen. Uh -huh. And it used to just drive me crazy because I thought certainly he was Bruce's equal, and in many ways, and that's just a personal preference, Yes, I resonated more with his music. Um, and why do you think? Why did you resonate more? Well, two of my favorite bands were The Birds and The Animals, and if you really break down Tom Petty and The Heartbreakers, it's actually the birds meets the animals. Mm, I never thought about the animals part. I always heard the birds, always in the beginning, of course. And I've become very, very close with his ex-wife, Jane. So I'm learning a lot about him. I was never a huge fan um, because I thought he was ripping off Roger McGuinn. I was such a fanatic birds, you mm -hmm. know, person. But now, I mean, sadly, a few months before he passed, I really started listening to his music. 
that yeah. Free Fallen song about Reseda and Jesus and Elvis and all that. I thought he must have read I'm with the band, you know? <laughs> you know, um, the, the thing about Tom, he, first of all, he comes from the South. So there's a real Southern aspect that just infuses the music. It's built in. Um, <clears throat> Tom, a lot of it's very hard won was not liked by his father. And you can really see that there's a downcast underdog element in his lyrics about always trying to push back. And that's what really fires up the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. He, he he was always, seems to be fighting against something, but, but including everyone with him, like so everyone can relate to it. Everyone's been through some of those things that he writes about. Yeah. Very, very accepting acceptable by people right. that's what i've noticed and also very sardonic too uh, you yeah. got you got lucky the lyric is you got lucky when you found me yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is something that i think a lot of people would probably want to tell their lovers yes you know if they were not in a great mood so he uh, you know and also too just a simple lyric like uh you know, even the losers get lucky sometimes. Yes, yes, that's right. He, very relatable, very relatable. And now, of course, I'm a huge fan because I've been listening to all of his records for several months now. Now, I want to go all the way back, though, to your, like, you know, what made you want to do this kind of work? I grew up in the Bronx, uh, right near Gunhill Road. Gunhill Road had a train that got you downtown. So when I was 13, I started going down to Manhattan, and it was incredible. When I was 15, I went to the Fillmore East. Mm, um, I got to see Delaney and Bonnie, B.B. <gasps> King, Albert oh God, King, Edgar Winters White Trash, Martha Hoople. It was really just eye-opening for me, and I'm also really lucky because prior to that, um, we used to go to the Catskills every summer, as many Jewish families did, mm -hmm. and we lived across the street from the Delano Hotel which um, which had uh, rock concerts every Wednesday night. So this is like the middle 60s. So every Wednesday night, we had hotel privileges so I could go to the show. I saw in one summer, The Coasters, Little Eva, oh, um, The Drifters, and The Isley Brothers. And I do remember Whoa. a flamboyant dressed guitarist and of course that was Jimi hendrix oh geez. so i got to see this when you were like 14 15 13 no i was younger, younger. i was oh born in 1956 so this okay. is 66 oh. i was 10 years old oh my lord and what an introduction yeah and somehow <laughs> and somehow i got to meet the double bill was the drifters and little eva of locomotion fame yes and i somehow got to meet them and i probably was bitten by the bug of celebrity that at that point so after that, so I'm back uh, growing up in New York City, so the train's getting me to the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. There's other concerts. I saw Grand Funk Railroad with Humble Pie opening at Madison Square Garden. And then I was reading The Village Voice, and uh, it said there was a band called the New York Dolls playing at Mercer Art Center. I was 15, and I said to my friend, this is just so off the chart of yeah. what we do. Of course, I didn't say it like that then. <laughs> And I wonder what you said. So we got up, we got on the train and we just went down. We were totally deer in our in the headlights with a very Warhol crowd. Saw the New York Dolls. This is probably a year or two before they're even signed. Oh. My head just blew off. It was just so <laughs> much fun. They I remember they they sounded like a messy Jay Giles band. Blues rock. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Um, but of course with lipstick and yes. 
and girly clothes and everything. They were way ahead of that curve. It was just really <laughs> remarkable to be in that. And I remember coming back to school like the next day and I just felt somehow miles taller than everybody else because <laughs> I just felt like I got led into a secret society. Yeah, you were transformed somehow, and, right? Yeah, and which was just amazing. So then a few years later, um, a friends of mine uh, said, you should come to CBGB's because uh, my friend Walter Lore is playing. He's in a band called The Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders. <laughs> So this is probably 75. I go see you know Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers with yeah. Walter Lore, who still makes great music. Um, and then I then all of a sudden it's Max's Kansas City. Yeah. And mm. got one show at Max's Kansas City, I remember. The bill was the headliner who I bought tickets for was Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. The opening act was Billy Joel, completely miscast. But that was just, that was how things happened. Yeah, but all kinds of mismatches. I remember. I remember very well. I sat there and such a snobby Kinky Friedman fan, watching Billy Joel play. I just did not get it. It was out of context to me. And I said to <laughs> and I just said to my friend like this, don't like this not happening. However, I said it, and this woman turned around and said this person is going to be a huge star. She was probably from his management or label, <laughs> yeah. but to this day, I remember it. And oh. then when his star ascended, <laughs> that story just popped into my head. And But that's, you know, that's really awesome that you could see somebody that you just don't get, but they are going to resonate yeah. with yeah. millions of people. Yeah. So I, yep. I love to support new musicians at our company. You know, aside from doing like great, amazing acts like Hart and Ozzy Osbourne, um, we have newer artists as well. So part of my job as a publicist, I'm like a DJ. I have to turn people on to things they may not have heard. And in some cases, if I'm working with Ozzy, uh, when I'm working with Ozzy's new album, I get to turn people on to something they haven't heard yet that I've heard. Yeah. So I love what I do. And that goes back to what you were saying. And I appreciate you saying that you feel that I love what I do. If I go into a restaurant, I want the waitress to make me feel like she loves what she does. Yeah. It makes for a better meal. Yeah. So if people sense that from you, they have confidence in you and they'll trust you. And I think musicians have sensed that from me. I, I love to, uh, I just love to create opportunities for them. And well, you have the fire for it. You have fire about what you love and it's very obvious. And okay. Who, how did you start your company? Right. Um, well, it goes back. Um, I was a rock critic for back in New York City. I was a rock critic for uh, Rolling Stone, Crawdaddy, Circus, Good, wow. good Times. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I kind of felt like editors were changing all the time. And I felt that my destiny was going to be in the hands of these ever-changing editors. Mm -hmm. At times, it worked for me. Paul Nelson, the, uh, the one of the original great rock critics, loved my stuff, printed my reviews in Circus, and then he said, hey, I just became the record editor of Rolling Stone. Would you like to write for me there? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Which was a fantastic break for me along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but I still felt like I don't like the fact that my destiny, again, is in the hands of things that uh, of people who are ever changing themselves. So I sent my resume out west. I could not find a job in New York City as a publicist, as a junior publicist. Hmm. Um, there were only like eight labels. This is pretty much mm. just as like 
punk is happening. So the, all the independent labels were not there. So they were like eight major labels and maybe three PR companies sent my resume out West and uh, a company companies. called Salters wow. and Roskin, which would later become Salters Roskin Friedman mm -hmm. had me interviewed in their New York office. And it was a very cold day, two days later where they called and they said, would you like to work in our West Coast office? I said, yes. Oh, how incredible. And I came out to L.A. sight unseen. All I knew about L.A., <laughs> I mean, obviously the Beach Boys. And I just remember like watching like Starsky and Hutch and seeing Columbo and the Mod Squad. But L.A., everything just it didn't look as distinctive as New York City. So I definitely rolled into town with a very snobby Woody Allen. Where is demanding? Where is the center of the city? <laughs> and you know what? The LA Weekly started publishing two weeks before I got here. The second I got here, I opened the weekly up. There's no internet. And it says that X is playing. And I'd seen X in New York in November 78. They played Hurrah. And I just remember, like many people standing in front of the stage, arms crossed, like, how could there be punks from Los Angeles? Yeah. Like, you couldn't <laughs> even imagine it. And it blew me away. Ooh. And so I get to L.A., I take a, uh, an apartment on Norton Avenue, and I'm at the Alpha Beta, which is, was then uh, called, it's oh, now Whole Foods. Yes, it was a big market chain way yeah. back. We're going way back, Mitch. And then John and Exine of X are shopping in the aisle. And I, for me, you know, that, that was like, it, it was like seeing major stars because I had such artistic respect for them. And I just thought, oh, my God, I finally moved. Like, I moved to the right place. Mm -hmm. And from there, I just. Uh, that was, was a good sign. So I was working. During the day, I was doing PR for Hall & Oates, Melissa Manchester, Leo Sayer, Bernie, <laughs> Bernie Toppin. Mm -hmm. And at night. I was out all the time. My place on Norton Avenue was right near the Starwood, was walking distance. So I was able oh to gosh. just go out every night and it was remarkable. So I was, I'm very lucky in that I saw the new music boom in New York City from Patti Smith to Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, Wayne County. And then I moved to Blondie, Talking Heads. Then I moved to Los Angeles, and I get to see X, Blasters, Wall of Voodoo, Go-Go's, The Screamers. Everybody cool. And oh, man. So that's, like, that's my story. Like I got to experience and live in two cities with musical renaissances. Mm -hmm. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> yes, you are. And you loved it so much, just like I did. I was a mo young mom at that point, very, mm -hmm. you know, and I missed a lot of that stuff. Even though Michelle Meyer, who booked that, was my dear friend. Yes. <laughs> Michelle Meyer was a great booker. Yes, yeah, I she was, was. She had a great ear, too, like you. Thank you. I remember yeah. uh, seeing Grace Jones at the Starwood, and it just blew my head off. <laughs> I had seen Grace Jones in New York because I was a rock critic, and I had a disco column in Good Times where I actually wrote about... Now, this is disco before Giorgio Moroder shows up. It's no disrespect to Giorgio Moroder, but Giorgio Moroder brings machines into disco. Yeah. Disco used to be this magical blend of Afro-Cuban rhythms and R&B. If you mm, listen to mm, the early disco mm. tracks, think of like the OJ's I Love Music, there's congas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's pieces of salsa in there. So I wrote a column for Good Times called Disco Sounds that appreciated disco music. So I always kind of liked being a little contrary anyway, but I didn't have to go out of my way. I just loved it because I loved R&B. And growing up in New York City, mm. 
you know, there were so many groups, BT Express, Brass Instruction. They sounded like the subway. And they just had the <laughs> feeling of it. Oh, and, I see. Wow, I never thought of it that yeah. way. Cool. So you you were working at this company. When did you decide to go off on your own? Well, um, it's 1979. I'm working at Soldiers and Roskin. 1982, there is a recession, and I get laid off. The company <sighs> had started to lose clients. John Belushi passed away. Teddy Pendergrass got in a car accident. So the music department was starting to recede. And so I got laid off. So I went back to writing for Rolling Stone. I mm. contributed to the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock. Mm. I had a column in BAM called Talk Talk. Mm. I, Renee, we, <laughs> I took Renee with me. We went up every night, rehearsal studios, flesh eaters, everybody. Oh, gosh. So I kept up and I was writing bios, uh, but my, the main money was coming from bios for Epic Records. Mm -hmm. My friend Sue Sawyer, an amazing publicist back then, she brought me in there. And which was really nice. Her boss was Glenn Brunman. Glenn Brunman was the first person who gave me a break as a rock critic. I saw Lou Reed at the Passaic Theater. It must have been 74. Gosh. And I was so inspired that I just wrote a review of it and sent it off to this magazine. Uh -huh. And they said, we like it. We're printing it. And by the way, would you like to review some records? We'll send you some. <laughs> so, you nice. Know, so just to go off for a second, because I'm a very spiritual person. So if you really think about what I just said, you have to make a space for yourself in this world because nobody's really just going to sit around and offer it to you. So writing a review is actually like an act of creative it visualization. Yeah, you were taking a step yeah. into your future. You know how I get all that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, uh, and it and it paid, and like for me, it was like, I want a lottery ticket. And all of a sudden I become a rock critic and then publicist. And then, so after, so I go back to freelance writing in the early 80s, uh, Epic Records. I write Michael Jackson's bio for Thriller, but of course I didn't get to interview him. But I interviewed oh. the manager, Freddie Demand. <laughs> he gave me great stuff. But, okay, good. So I, I and I wrote the bio for Lionel Richie's debut solo wow, album. Wow, these which, are big deals. So yeah, Do you and have then, all your work? yes, I have all this stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, and and then the next step after that was trying to find a, a job back in PR and. Uh, Michael Lipman, a great manager to this day, still handles uh, Matchbox 20. He handled Melissa Manchester. He was sorry that I left, that I got laid off. Mm -hmm. So he told this fellow, Michael Levine, um, about me. So Michael Levine says, how would you like to start a music division here? Mm. And... It was flattering, but I really, at Soldiers and Roskin, I never signed business. I didn't know how to sign business. Right. But I said yes to the opportunity. I remember the first day I started, uh, Michael had Paul Anka. He goes, well, Paul Anka is your first client. <laughs> and that wasn't exactly my idea of how to start uh, a music department. And that's no disrespect to Paul Anka. Mention the royalty statements on my, he wrote my way, right? I, yeah, he wrote my way yeah. and the Tonight theme. Yeah. He's and a wealthy man. He's and he's, he's still performing. It's amazing. And he's a great songwriter. It just yes. wasn't my thing. Right, right. Um, but then opportunities started happening. And uh, we signed the Everly Brothers because um, mm. they had to get Swoon. a... Because they were signed by Triad Artists. The agency said to them, if you sign with us, we'll give you a free publicist. So Triad, Peter Grosslight there, knew Michael. And so we went to the meeting 
with Peter, so we get the Everly Brothers, who are in the midst of an amazing comeback. Mm-hmm. Dave Edmonds produces EB84. Yeah. And then I, so this is another interesting story, is that I try uh, to get the Everly Brothers a star on the Walk of Fame. You would think, you, it's one phone call, done. Yes, you would absolutely think. You know what? There was a backlog of people. There was political considerations. The Everly Brothers hadn't been around for a lot of years. So it took three times. That was mm. three times is three years. Mm. Um, and I remember that I got it. And for me, being a publicist, I'm like, okay, that's great. But who's going to present it to them in addition to Johnny Grant, who was the, yes. who was the mayor of Hollywood? <laughs> yes. And so I thought, okay, well, Paul McCartney, because he wrote the single, uh, but Paul McCartney wasn't coming to uh, America at that time because Lennon had recently been assassinated. Oh, jeez. Because remember, this is the 80s, so yeah. he hadn't come here. Oh. Um, and then I thought, well, a pretty girl always makes a great photo with guys. Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> she sang When Will I Be Loved. Yeah, she did. She was unable to do it. <laughs> but I remember reading an interview with Tom, uh, with Tom Petty saying his, his love for Roy Orbison, the Everly Brothers. So I call up. And the person who picks up the phone, a very good friend of mine to this day, Mary Clouser. Right. And I know all about her. <laughs> and I say, and I say to, uh, I say, I'm the publicist for the Everly Brothers. They are going to be honored with a star on the Walk of Fame. They would be honored. And I did check with them first, and they said, okay, make that phone call. Uh-huh. If Tom Petty would present it to them. Two minutes later, there's a phone call back. He'd love to do it, saying oh. where and when. The oh. morning of, I get there. Tom is there with Tony Dimitriotis, his longtime manager, and Tony just felt, he felt comfortable with me. He goes, just tell Tom what you want him to do. So I walked over to Tom, and you could sense Tom's shyness about being at huge events, and I kind of sensed Mm -hmm. that immediately. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, how cool that you're here. You could say as much as you want, as little as you want. Mm -hmm. And I said, here's a telegram from Paul McCartney who couldn't be here. (laughs) <laughs> because I asked Paul McCartney's people, if he can't be there, give me a telegram that could be read at the event. Wow, so I gave to Tom, so I gave Tom Petty the Paul McCartney telegram, <laughs> and <clears throat> one so year cool. later, um, I get a phone call from Patrick Goldstein, who wrote the Sunday column at the L.A. Times. Because I just put your name forward. Uh, Tom is thinking about leaving his publicist and coming to a new one. At that time, aside from the Everleys, I did Sheena Easton, Wang oh, Chung, Ario Speedwagon. I didn't have one client that was in that star quality of Tom Petty. Yeah. And I got it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I signed him. <laughs> and it's so, because he remembered how cool you were with the Everleys, right? He, he sensed it for me. And then, so that's March 1987. So mm-hmm. Tony Dimitriades was also working with Stevie Nicks. And he said would you like to be considered for Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> yes. So I go up to the house. I'm up against every publicist in the whole country, New York PR. And I was just talking to the, the group, and I remember just the subject of photos came up, and I just said, there should never be unflattering chin shots. It should always be, we, <laughs> yes. should, try, we should try to get pictures wherever possible. Stevie Nicks looks across the table and says, I like you. Uh- <laughs> Because of the unflattering chin shots, I bet. And, you know, I think that, and I I did say at the meeting, 
that I totally dug the Tusk album because I thought it was a fuck you to people who wanted to put you in a box. Oh, and Lindsay, So I could see Lindsay Buckingham started to resonate with me eye to eye. Oh. I get a phone call two days later. I signed Fleetwood Mac. Okay, so, so this, cool. this is all March 87. God. A few days later... Uh, my friend Andrea Cardo, the late Andrea Cardo, is working at HK Management saying, Hart's looking for a publicist. So I meet Trudy Green. She go, oh, And she I basically goes, who do you Trudy. handle? And I said, Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> she goes, well, you'll be good for Hart. A few days later, wow. I get a phone call and for a meeting with Ozzy Osbourne. And I go there and I meet Ozzy and Sharon. Uh, and but I have there's a ba- there's a background to this story I'm going to get to in a second. She asked who I handle, and I said, "Oh, Tom Petty, Fleetwood Mac, and Hart." <laughs> and to put the icing on the cake, late uh, before the end of March, I also signed Eddie Money. So that was five uh-huh. in one month. Now Jeez. I meet Ozzy and Sharon at your house. Right. Now, because... Trivial Pursuit. Yes. Right? We're playing Trivial Pursuit. Because what would happen is that I became <laughs> Michael DeBar's publicist in 1986 for his album, Somebody Up There Likes, Likes Me. Me. Yes, it's a wonderful record. Right. And from my work with Michael, I met Pamela, who asks me to handle the publicity for I'm With The Band. Yes! So Renee and I used to get invited to the house... <laughs> And we were sitting oh there completely, utterly starstruck. There was Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith. I remember one time we got to one of your parties a couple of years later, earlier, and there's I was with Lance and John of the Hollywood Kids. Yes. Who were pretty influential in making gossip trendy. Yes, like they cool were. Gossip. That's right. They, they had were a column, not mean. amazing column. They were great kids. They I were not them. mean. And that yeah. was and I just so we became friends. So uh, we we go to Pamela's house and there's a tap tap at the door and there's no one there. We were like the first to arrive. It's Barbara Streisand. Yes. <laughs> well, those were the days. <laughs> so we so we just say come in on my in. Little bitty funky house. We had these incredible parties, trivial uh, pursuit parties, and then celebrity parties. There was a game called Celebrity. There was one. I still have a picture of one of Steve Jones. Bruce Willis and Ozzy show and Michael showing their tattoos. Wow, that's a beauty. And I'm sure you were there. I mean, yeah, you came to all those parties. It was uh, it was truly amazing. Barbara Streisand was seeing Don Johnson. That's how she showed up. She wanted to be friends with his friends. Uh-huh. And it was just so amazing to have her in the house. Warren Beatty came once. Yeah, those were some incredible parties. It was just remarkable. So Tom Cruise. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I mean, it's like, it, yeah. it just, it did not get better than that. So, um, yeah. so Renee and I were shopping one night at the, uh, what was it called? Bristol Farms, the Beverly Center. Yeah. And I remember we saw Ozzy and Sharon. They kind of remembered us from the party, but we didn't say hello. So when I go to meet Ozzy and Sharon for my meeting, they're like, oh, we know you. We saw you at the supermarket besides uh, be seeing you at Pamela's yes, house. Yes, yes. So I became, <laughs> so we became Ozzy's publicist and we worked with Ozzy from 87, probably all the way to 97. Then they took a break from us and re-signed with us in 2005. And I, we've been his publicist and you're ever still, since. I know he's still with Ozzy. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. The best sense of humor. Oh, he's so oh, funny. Lord. And so is she. Oh, my God. What a couple. What they used to do, one time Renee and I, we were already handling them. We were at Le Petit Four at Sunset Plaza. Yeah. And we were smelling rotten eggs. 
And I said to Renee, I bet you Ozzy and Sharon are here. They would go out with stink bomb oil to shake places and put some little drops just to create like havoc. Really? It was so awesome. I thought it would to keep people away from them, maybe. No, it was just it was just to create so a, a crazy vibe at a very high end shake oh, place. That is classic. I love that about them. Ozzy, so like, I love Ozzy. All oh these my crazy God. stories. And and also, too, back in the day, you know, Sharon Osbourne, she becomes, you know, and she's Ozzy's manager. There's not that many. Maybe there's five women managers at that point. Mm -hmm. There was Susan Mineo. She was Donna Summer's manager. There, there were a few others. Um, but she had to really be forceful because the men did not want her in that club. So she used to push back. And if somebody crossed her, she would do things like send her dog's excrement in a Tiffany box. Yes, I remember those things. She would do it. She, She's a, oh, my God. She's and there for her man, that's for sure. You know, if, if you try crossing don't, her. Don't, don't. Well, her father. Oh, yes. Okay. Her father. So talk a little bit about who he was. Okay. Don Arden, <laughs> Sharon Osbourne's father. I was just talking about uh, her father with Sharon. There was an Ozzy Osbourne in-store signing at Amoeba Music. And Don Arden I met, and he gave me Air Supply and his other client, Black Sabbath. Black <laughs> Sabbath, uh, Glenn Hughes was the lead singer for the album. It was called Seventh Son. Must have been like 86 or 85. But then Glenn Hughes couldn't go on the road because of emotional problems that he had so they put a new singer in this fellow named ray gillen but anyway um so don arden so i'm uh black sabbath i'm sitting in the office he goes get rolling stone on the phone and i'm sitting there like this is really embarrassing because the manager's sitting right here he goes just tell rolling stone you're sitting here with don arden they'll know me oh, people fear don yes so <laughs> i got for sure so we want to do an item about the black sabbath upcoming tour so he takes the phone after I pass it to him, and he goes, hi, this is Don Arden. Thank you for your interest. We, uh, Black Sabbath, are going to be announcing a tour, and we want to let Rolling Stone be the first to know that there will be a human sacrifice at every Black Sabbath show. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a witness to that. You've been a witness to so I, many outrageous like, things. I can't even believe it. Like... <laughs> Like, and I was just, it was great because I have like a psycho sense of humor. You know, I, I think it was Oscar Levant who said, Oh, I love him. Never oh, underestimate the value of tastelessness. <laughs> or, no, never underestimate the stimulation of tastelessness. Stimulation. That's even better. Yeah. Oh. Well, that reminds me of when I did I'm with the band and it was going to be Memoir of a Groupie and. Gene Simmons, who you worked with a lot yeah. too, said, "No, you've got to use the word confessions. Yes, just the use of a different a word like that makes it much more titillating." It's, <laughs> yes, and it's great that you bring up Gene. I also met Gene at your house. Yes, I <laughs> I, love I owe this. you so much. Okay, so I I'll met, take it. So I get introduced <laughs> to Ozzy uh, and Sharon. Um, I get introduced to Gene. Um, there was more. Uh, There's more. Steve Jones. Yeah. Because when Steve yeah, uses right. an indie My publicist gosh. for various things, uh, yeah. he hires me, Good. and we got the Sex Pistols re uh, reunion oh, um, back in '96 when what they did that. What an odd show that was. You know, so <laughs> it was just. It's I loved great. it though. Yeah. <clears throat> they could play their instruments better by then. Yes. 
I know it's it, the app. The app for them, the afterlife, sounded much better than the mm-hmm, first go mm-hmm. around. It's true. So yeah, so I met so many people in your place, and then of course there was Helena's, the great private club on Temple Street, know, on, adjacent unreal. to Silver Lake. We were members. You had to be a member. To, yes. Yeah. And you know. Helena liked me, and I met her at your house also. <laughs> wow. But it was interesting. When I asked about a membership, I only got a membership, though, uh, for Saturday. Friday night was the better night. Yes. <laughs> but sometimes I would go with a member who had Oh, yeah. The a Friday, Friday night. nights were insane. I was right. there almost every Friday night for that entire like two years it was open it was only open a couple years yeah right it was just really remarkable because see helena's was in a rough neighborhood but across the street from helena's was the police station so it had valet parking yeah it would never get hassled by anybody so there would be major stars (laughs) including prince oh prince that's the only time i met him was at helena's it was very brief but i was beside myself i got to dance with him to his song kiss I mean, it's, he was next to me. He wasn't really with me, but I was dancing on the floor with him. It was insane. It was a, That was a really special time in Los Angeles where the celebrities were going out to... There was a club for them to go small to. Small club. Very small. No paparazzi. Yeah, I know. They None. weren't allowed. They weren't allowed. No was, cell phones. It was such a really unique time that you couldn't share it. You had to be in the moment. Yeah. And at the time, I handled Sandra Bernhard. Oh, so love I, her. My girl crush. <laughs> and... So, <laughs> Sandra, uh, just a remarkable person, a trailblazer. Oh, yeah. I listen to her show on Sirius. I follow mm. her on Twitter. Me and too. she's just love a her. remarkable outlaw. I remember conversations with her, and she was like, you know, do you think that I should come out? You know, because mm-hmm. she just, it was, you know, I think it was obvious to most that. Uh, that she was gay, but it was something that wasn't really talked yeah, about. Yeah, You know, this is pre-Ellen. This is pre-a yes, yes, lot of yes, stuff. Yes, 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 And also what's a great thing of working with Sandra is she wrote for many publications, including Vanity Fair and People. Mm-hmm. So uh, smart. Ridiculously smart. So she would give me her pieces first, and I would say to her, can, can I make some suggestions on edits? And mm. she said, yeah. So mm. so for me, I was like thinking, here's somebody who I just look up to, I revere, and I was helping edit her pieces, mainly just for punctuation, not for any ideas, but just right, to make right. it smoother. Mm-hmm. So when the editors got it, they would see something really tight. Yeah. So they didn't think any any less of her, perhaps. Not yeah. that they should, but I wanted I to make sure. Because I just, I will always... You know, we protect, you know, our artists. It, you know, to this day, when I'm out with my wife, like, she'll go, like, why are you walking in front of me? I'm so used to walking in front of our artists because basically wow. you've got to take the bullet for them. Yeah. Wow. What so a way to look I at am it. always in front. So when I'm out with Renee, she goes, it's kind of like, maybe like you should let me go first. <laughs> and I said, of course. But I said, I'm just uh. on autopilot here as a publicist. <laughs> so how, what was it? I mean. Were you friendly? Were you friends? Did you become friends with like Paul Stanley and, and Jane? Did you consider yourself friends with some of these people? No. No. Um, very rarely. I, I think that's probably why I was able to hold on to clients mm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. I never would uh, go above the boundaries. With Tom Petty and Jane, I was very lucky. They used to invite Renee, my mother in law, Yvonne, and my daughter. <laughs> right, right. Christmas, Thanksgiving. I got invited to Tom Petty's 50th birthday party. In that house is 25 people, including Springsteen, Elvis Costello, and Jeff Lynn. And Renee, and I'm there. 
like saying to my inside my head, why, why, you know, <laughs> it was just one of those great things. And well, they were very, they were Southern people. They yes. were very, very home people. He spent a lot of time at home from what I've heard yeah. from Jane. And so, yeah, that makes sense that, you know, they, they didn't cultivate celebrity. No. But, but they wound up in the thick of it with the Wilburys, yes. especially. In the, yes. Yeah. And it's really funny because my mother-in-law, a very down-home woman, I love she came her. from Iowa, but she just dressed up all the time. Yeah. Jane would oh always say, God, what a you better bring your mother-in-law. <laughs> because I think they resonated with her because she was not from a slick city. Yeah. And they just... and. It was great. They used to give us Christmas gifts, and it wow. was wow. Do you remember what any of them were? One was just a, a beautiful throw that we still have this day for a couch, <laughs> red and gold. Oh, I'm sure Jane just, picked just, it out. Yeah, just beautiful. <laughs> so I was, I felt totally honored during that run for 17 years. Gosh, and, I'll bet. It sounds like you definitely became friends with them. Yeah. And when I first started working with Tom and Jane, their house was burnt down on right. Encino right. Avenue. Right around that exact time, right? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So I remember that, um, so I, I first take on uh, handling Tom Petty, and I think the fire happens in the first two weeks of me handling him. Oh, my Lord. And How did I, you handle that? I mean, well, it was different then, but uh, wow. there was a st you give statements out. We faxed yeah. it to everybody. Yeah, yeah. I remember I... Uh, I had to call Tom in his hotel room and Jane picked up the phone and she said, everybody has been great to us. Uh, the Eurythmics have bought us clothing. Yeah. And as I'm talking to her, for some reason, the fire alarm goes off in the hotel room where they're staying. Oh, that must have been so scary for them. So she oh went into God. like another panic on oh. the phone. Oh dear. And oh my. it was really amazing. Um, she was, um, Jane was a beautiful Southern woman who had so much pride. And you look at Tom Petty's lyrics, there is a Southern pride there. And mm -hmm. there's also a thing of, we're nice, but if you try to cross us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we will protect ourselves mm -hmm. from you and your kind kind of thing. And I think... Um, <laughs> So that, that's very much Jane. Uh, she was a mama lion. Yes. Right. Very much. So like Gail Zappa. Yes. Yeah. Very similar in that way. Right. And also we work with the Zappa, the Zappa family trust. Yes, I know. Trust. Now I see you, you're doing that. Yeah. And, and it's been There's a documentary coming out that I just got invited to that I'm in. Wow. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. So we've been working with the Zappa family trust, I think maybe eight years. Oh. But oh. at the house, before I handle the Zappa family trust, I meet Gail Zappa and I meet some of the kids. And then Gail Zappa first hires us back, I think it's the, the 90s when we were handling Prince and the Grand Slam Club. Because I remember she was there one night because we invited mm -hmm. her. We, yeah. were, we were doing Dweezil and Ahmet's album. I think it was right. called Shampoo. Because <laughs> yeah. like, there's a, a funny picture of them with pointed haircuts. Are you talking about shampoo. Z when they were in Z? Yes. What a great right. band. Yes. How great were they live? And it was such a short-lived thing. Yeah. How about, oh, my God. I mean, it's one of the best live shows I've ever seen when they were together working. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, again, so many people I met in your living room. I know. It's kind of just well, really Gail, amazing. probably. Yeah. 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 Uh, there, there's so many. I know. So, thank, I say thank you to the spirit of infinity. Aww. Well, I love you very much. So, who are you handling now that you're excited about? 
Well, there's just a lot of different folks we work with. Uh, one of them is uh, Amanda Mosher. She's a California Americana artist. Oh, and, I'd like uh, to know about her. She just, uh, and she lives right in Lake Balboa area. Oh, and, right uh, around the corner. She had a band called Calico a few years ago. There were three gals in there. Mm -hmm. So they were really uh, singing the praises for California country. And she's mm. solo uh, again now. Um I work with this fellow, Ian Goth. He's uh, Armenian-American, uh, born in Iran, uh, flew, fled from Iran, and he does this amazing version of The Doors' Spanish Caravan, a track from their Waiting for the Sun record. Uh -huh. And I heard his album, uh, Jim Scott, who produced Tom Petty, and Wilco produced it. Oh, wow. And it had so many elements of it that he's a master acoustic guitarist. Many elements of it that really resonated with me. And the first thing I did was I got to see if I can get guitar player to premiere the video for Spanish Caravan. Mm -hmm. But a complete unknown, I got it. I always ask. That's my creative visualization. You uh -huh. don't know unless you ask. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to tell another story in a second okay, about that. Okay, good. But um, <laughs> so I do that. And then I get in touch with Jeff Jampol, who manages the Doors estate. And he gives me a uh, he he gives uh, Ian's uh, video to Robbie Krieger because uh, Spanish Caravan is basically it's a mainly a guitar uh -huh. piece, God. and I got great quotes from Robbie Krieger, so that enabled me to get Ian more publicity. Mm -hmm. And so that's my thing. You're it's so like, smart, though. Thank, Mitch. Thanks. How can you I create know how opportunities? How smart you are! You, you creative thinking that way. You know, you, you you don't let anything get in your way. You don't say you can't do it or no or i mean you just right yeah you just you know go it for it it's like when people ask what i do for a living i say two things i try to make people tell me yes who are programmed to tell me no <laughs> and then i also say that i put vibe into a bottle and spray the universe with it <laughs> so do i right we're like that way we're vibe meisters right <laughs> yes, and so back to, back to creative visualization and yes. the whole thing about asking. Yeah. I handle America, a very undervalued group, uh, and really remarkable songs. Um, so album number, um, I started handling them back in 79 when I was at Soldiers Roskin, and they came back to MSO, and then they're still with us at SRO. And, you know, a lot of people said, how the hell did America get George Martin as a producer? He hmm. produced six albums for them. Huh. And, you know, America I was seen know as, you know, in the shadow of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Yeah. They come to L.A. and people, so they get second class citizenship, even though Elliot Roberts signs them there with Warner hmm. Brothers. So they start popping off instant hits. Album number one, massive. Album number two, really big. Album number three, they run out of gas. And the label says, guys, we're going to need a producer. Who would you like? So they said, well, George Martin. <laughs> and wouldn't you know, Warner Brothers makes a phone call. And as it turns out, George Martin is in Los Angeles. He meets them, likes them, because Jerry and Dewey, and then it was Dan, uh, before, uh, before he had left the group in 77, um, Jerry and Dewey are really, they're not only nice, they're really wise and smart and real excellent acoustic guitarist, a great vocal blend. We all know that. Yeah. And so George Martin starts producing America. So George Martin goes back on the charts first time since the Beatles because of America. Isn't that something? So 
when I a few years ago they told the story. That's how I know it. Uh, at the, their Grammy Museum, they did one of those Q and A acoustic performances. And I always tell them before a big interview, they were interviewed for CBS Sunday Morning last year. They were interviewed by Dan Rather for his big uh, his big interview show. And I always remind the guys, tell the story about yeah, George. George. Don't Martin. forget. Wow. Because <laughs> for me, it's not only just a great musical story that makes America look good. I think it's a really just a great spiritual story about creative visualization. Mm-hmm. You don't know if you, unless you ask. I know so many like musicians, like you think like, how come there some top musicians don't have more collaborations with others? Yeah. People are afraid to ask them. Yes, I bet that's it. Uh, the, the Wilburys is the the classic version of the pe- people mm. getting together. And it was flukish. I've heard a lot about it from Jane, you know, how it all played out, just meeting each other backstage. It was George who started it, right? Yes. George made it happen, right? So cool. It's so um, cool. It's the yeah. coolest story ever. And they start working in Dave Stewart's studio in Encino, and oh, which was close to Tom's the house. The valley's cool, everyone. Just so you know, even though it's hot, the valley's a very cool place to live. Well... <laughs> The valley, and not many miles from here, is where the Burrito Brothers wrote the Gilded Palace of Sin album. Oh, yeah, I was there on DeSoto. You know I was right there. I know that. (laughs) And what's interesting about that album, because, like, they're definitely the underdogs, and they're saying things about Los Angeles. If you think about it, they were so many, even though they were in the Hollywood scene, certainly, but I think they had that ability of being away from it, that they could maybe get a bigger view of it. So could be. You know, they also lived in the hills, too. They moved right. around. They yeah. moved around a lot. But I love that Valley Home. That's where Graham turned me on to all the country music. He sat me and Mercy down and said, you have to listen to this. And he played us George Jones and Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, Ray Price, Willie, all of them. And it changed my life completely. Oh, expanded me yeah. for country music. Yeah, that's and you worked with Dwight. Yes, right? and Dwight was so. It's has been a. I mean, love him, huge yeah. influence I, on me. At one point, I could say that I handled simultaneously David Bowie, Tom Petty, and Dwight Yoakam, <laughs> and Tom Waits. Uh, at, there was a period where he was in that mix, and it was remarkable. My introduction to country music. So I go see Poco when I'm 15 love years him. old at love Carnegie him. Hall. Mm. And I see. Wow, they played Carnegie Hall. They, That's uh, amazing. Nineteen, yeah, 1971. Wow. The, their album from the inside just came out. Oh, so I was great. so blown away by Rusty Young on pedal steel mm-hmm. that a week later I went down to Manny's on 48th Street and I bought a pedal steel guitar, which I still have in my house. It was so hard to learn how to play it, and. You know, this is before there are electric guitar tuners. I yeah. couldn't keep it in tune oh. because, <laughs> you know, because you not only have to tune it on the neck, you have to tune it on the side with a wrench because that affects the pedals. Because the pedal, uh, you could have like one string that is, let's say, a C, but when you press it down, it turns to a C sharp. So okay. you have to tune it to C sharp on the side. Of wow, the instrument. sounds complex. It was. So yeah. I spent more time trying to keep the bloody thing in tune. Yeah. But nonetheless, <laughs> so after, so uh, I used to sit in my house in the Bronx and they used to play it on the radio. Uh, Burrito Brothers, Poco, mm. New Riders of the Purple Sage, mm-hmm. The Grateful Dead's, you know, forays into oh, country. Oh, I love their, that's the only stuff I liked of theirs, but it was great. And, Ripple, you know, oh my God. And then, I mean, I was so immersed in that. And then I went to see the New York Dolls and then I got into Bowie and Roxy. So yeah. I kind of put country aside and then I get into it years later when in 1988, I get a phone call about 
would I like to work, uh, meet Dwight Yoakam? And uh, so it turns out I don't get to meet Dwight, but I meet his manager at the time, R.C. Bradley. Mm -hmm. And I was referred to Dwight by his label publicist at Warner Brothers, but Dwight was really Warner Brothers Nashville, but he wanted an L.A. publicist. So Bill Bentley, great publicist. Yeah. Um, puts my name forward. So I meet mm -hmm. R.C. He goes, you'll be perfect for Dwight. At this time, I have Petty, Ozzy, yeah. you know, all these other acts. So our, uh, his manager goes, look, Dwight's recording at Capitol Studios with Buck Owens, Streets of Bakersfield. Why don't you go down and bring a photographer? <laughs> oh, wow. and, at the, and at this time, Buck Owens is not Godhead. In most people's minds in 1987 or 88 pre-Dwight, it's kind of hee-haw. And it's not, and even though if you were a true country music fan, you would know that Buck Owens oh, is like yeah. the Dylan of country he is, music. Yes, he absolutely but is. But yes. for most people in the late 80s, it's like Buck Owens, hee-haw, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So I got to see them record Streets of Bakersfield. God, man, how thrilling. And it was like, sometimes, like you find yourself in these moments of like, oh, oh, like you don't know they're going to be history, but you're there. Yeah, and if but you, you said to yourself. You do know though, you do. Yeah. It was because, special. Because I've been in those moments uh -huh. where I say, okay, well, this is happening. This is really happening right now. And you try to be immersed in it, but it's so huge, some yeah. of the stuff, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you must have some great Bowie situations. Yes. Um, Tell me something about him. Oh, um, here's how I didn't cool, know him at all. Here's how cool David Bowie was. It's 1996. I'm in Hartford, Connecticut at the dress rehearsal at the venue before the tour for the Outside album where it's uh, David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails. So it's the rehearsal the day before. So I'm taking notes because I know I'm going to have to put a press release out the day after the show. Right. And if I'm running around that night at the show itself, I won't be able to take notes. Mm. So I'm sitting in the back of God. the venue yeah. and I'm taking notes. Uh -huh. And at the end, uh, I continue to sit there after the rehearsal's over, just still scribbling. And then Coco Schwab, his longtime personal assistant, comes back and says, hey, David saw you taking notes. He wants you to read your notes back to him. So I go back and he asks what I thought. And he goes, why don't you try reading your notes to me? Because he felt that would be a more honest appraisal because that's what you wrote in real time. So the, so wow. I remember I wrote Amazing. what a song that I felt threw off the momentum of the show. Mm. It was Night Flights by Scott Walker, a cover huh. song. Huh. And I didn't know it, and I'm figuring other people probably don't know it. And I say it, and I said, and I'm sitting there kind <laughs> of like, oh, shit. You had to read them all? Oh, Did you read shit. all the notes? Oh. I, so I, I say, I've written that I feel that the song, I didn't even know the title of it, uh, that I felt it just threw off the momentum of the show. And he said to me, I know it does, but I but I want to give people what I think they need rather than what they just think they want. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I had It was deep, I guess. Wow. There were just so many moments like that. And people used to know that I was a rock critic before I got to be a publicist. So I was sometimes I was I think a lot of times given a certain respect from the artist, like Mitch, what do you think? Yeah. It's like, what are your, what are your oh. rock critic friends going to think? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, 
It's like when I was coming up, like John Perales, the chief music critic of the New York Times, he was my uh, editor at Crawdaddy, would give me albums to review. Mm -hmm. Jim Farber, who writes for The Guardian and many other outlets. Mm -hmm. I was his editor at Good Times when I was editing there for a year. And so people, so the artists would always say, what do you think? Like I would write Tom Petty letters after I heard an album. Like Mm. when I heard The Last DJ, an album that was probably Tom's least successful. But he does come out and is critical of radio and how it segmented all kinds of music. Um, So I wrote him a letter and there were so many great tracks on that record like Dreamville. uh, I'm not familiar with that record. I'm going to have to listen to it. You Can't Stop the Sun. I think Mm. that's on that one. Mm. And it's just a really remarkable record. It didn't do well. Um, Why do you think that is? Because he, I think he was critical of radio, so they didn't play it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was critical of the whole industry, and he did not make any bones about it, which is so amazing. He went up Mm. against them all the time. Nobody did that, right? He was really tough about it. And I think a lot of it is uh, there's a Southern pride. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you people think that you can cross me. You know what's so cool? I was covering a Tom Petty interview um, for CNN. One of the great things uh, about being a publicist, uh, especially for TV, artists do like to have you around. Because Mm. even if, so they could say, hey, what did you think of it? Mm -hmm. So maybe their next interview could be stronger. Yeah, yeah. So they they just don't need like a diva publicist just listening in. There was like a reason. So Tom said something. CNN asked about the rising cost of concert tickets. Mm. And uh, I think the Eagles were the highest. They were charging back then. This must have been the late 90s, like $150 a ticket. And Tom looked right at the camera. He goes, I wouldn't pay that for a rock concert. And (laughs) he says, all of this is contributing to mm. rock and roll not being the force it once was because it was becoming too exclusive. Totally. And then he says something that was so perceptive that I never heard anybody say it before or since. He goes, you know all these soundtrack albums they're putting out? He goes, you know they're just throwaway cuts that didn't make it onto artist albums. And they give them to these soundtracks. So now you're sitting with the shitty soundtrack album. And now you see three of them in the top 20. He goes, don't you see that rock and roll, the aesthetic, is being lessened, weakened by the industry that is now force-feeding an artist's B and C and D Ooh. level cuts. He goes, How, this is what's why, contributing. Because they were cheaper to get? Or yeah, why? they were what? just sitting around. It's like, oh. hey... Hmm. You know, hey, art, you know, artist B, give us a, give us a song you got for the soundtrack album oh, that may uh, have nothing to do with what the film synopsis right, or right, the, right, the plot right, is. Right, 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 yeah. So he said elements like this, rising tickets, um, artists' worst cuts that didn't make their own albums are being, it's like sold off like at a fire sale. Ugh. And I just and Whoa. he was a fighter for rock and roll. Yeah, yeah he totally was. He didn't was, push yeah. back just because it was like stubborn Southern pride. He was telling you, rock and roll is special, and these industry people are trying to make it less special. And I'm not going to let them have their way. Yeah. So he was hard. So on the surface, he could be hard to deal with, but there was yeah. a reason for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Were you with him when he the eight ninety eight? No, that that precedes that's such a me. great story. It's yeah, really, yeah. That's right. They they try to make Tom Petty the first artist to have the higher price yeah. on an album. Yeah. The list price was seven ninety eight. They tried to make it eight ninety eight, and and he said he was going to call the album eight ninety eight if they did that. <laughs> oh, 
And then, of course, the famous Rolling Stone cover where he's ripping up a dollar bill on the cover. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like another just everything with him was in the name of the quality of rock and roll. And he was very prescient because look what's happened. I mean, what how, how do you see the shift since, you know, in the last like five years in the music industry? It's so different. Um, I think everything's different. I mean, basically, it's more democratic than it's ever been before. There are new artists coming up through YouTube that get record deals now. That's true. That's true. Um, so, so you're talking, you're pointing out the good side yes. of it all. Oh, the, the good side of it is that <laughs> yeah. your future, if you're a certain artist, may not be in the hands of an A&R person at a record label. That's for sure. And so the playing field is more democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad side of the industry is that there's really no artist development anymore. Exactly. Somebody, A&R people don't exist base, pretty much, right? Um, I think they're, I mean, they're still there, but I don't know if their function's the same. Now, if an artist like Prince came up now, Prince didn't really happen until, I think, his second or third album. Yes, his third album, I think. Yeah. The Warner Brothers believed in him so much that they indulged artistic whims, which were probably yeah. sort of like crazy for an artist putting a debut record out, but they believed in him, they stuck by him, mm-hmm. and they let him grow and flower and... and they let him grow into the artist. Yes, he'd exactly. It was like that, a flower growing. It, it doesn't really happen that like that anymore. So, no. so they're they're on their own. Yes. Which, uh, like you mentioned earlier, that you know at least, you know they they garner their own fans and they have yeah. to do so much of that work themselves. Though. Right. Now, an example where the record industry has worked recently, a group like Greta Van Fleet. And whatever you think about them artistically being perhaps too much in the shadow of previous bands, Jason Flom at Atlantic loves loved the band and gave mm. them a record deal and nurtured them. Well, that's and good And they to are hear. now a platinum-selling band. Yes. Hopefully they'll grow into more exciting songwriters. They're very young. This could happen. They are very Th- young. This yes. could happen. But that's an example where the record industry still does work. Mm-hmm. He believed in them, and I am sure that he funneled millions of dollars into them. Yeah. Their videos looked a certain way. Mm-hmm. That album sounded a certain way. Yeah, that takes that's money. True. And that, yeah, that's almost like a throwback. Yeah. Because someone believed in them. What about the Struts? They're my favorite young band. I, Why aren't they bigger? They, I, I want you know, they're not getting the attention they need because. The, have you seen them live by any chance? I have not seen them live. Oh my God, Mitch. Um, it's I, so thrilling. I, I, I feel do, like a teenager when I'm watching them. I do <laughs> love their records. Um, I don't, because I think they're an international band, I don't think they are able to tour America logistically. They've lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. I didn't even know that. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that. Maybe they need to be bigger. Maybe it's the curse of glam rock. David Bowie, for all of his amazing cultural impact was not truly a big record seller back in the day yeah well rodney yeah. bingenheimer brought him out as david jones in right. la for the first time with his long hair and yes. robes yes he went through so many different incarnations right so i think <laughs> you know whether it's bands like the new york dolls the, there is a certain curse to glam rock and for some reason i don't know why it's fully connected and why it's not connecting for the struts and I could tell you something. Their videos look expensive. Their yeah. album sounds expensive. Yeah. Not in a bad way. I don't know why. Sometimes great art does not it, connect. It falls through the cracks. 
as as a as a lead singer performer, this kid there's he's unparalleled right now. You need to take a look at some of their live stuff to see yeah. him. I've, I've seen them so on YouTube. remarkable. Yeah, Luke, Luke Spiller, very special. And I've read your interview yeah. with them in plea. Uh, in, <laughs> yeah, in my please kill me. My please kill me article. If I them. was younger, you know where oh, I'd yeah. be. Okay, you'd if be, I, you'd be oh. on the bus with Luke. <laughs> I have such a crush on him, but, you know, I could be his grandma. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And <laughs> The groupie heart still right. beats, and, always. And, well, a groupie's heart, and also you have an A&R heart. You always had good taste. Yes, uh, real early I could ch- pick them out. Like? Always, real early, early. Yes. Well, you know, I met Captain Beefheart when I was 16. <sighs> well, that's... You know, that was the life-changing thing. <laughs> All of those, all of those particular elements are just so huge, and you knowing what's good and what's great. Um, I know that's why I'm surprised they're not they're not really big. This band, you know. Maybe they'll happen on the next album. Sometimes you have to wait for it. Yeah, at least the record company's putting the records out. I think yeah. you know. Yeah, so they they are behind them somewhat, you know. But yeah. they they just hang around clubs, you know, all dolled up and all their makeup and everything. Yeah. I love them. Right. I mean, it's true. If you put Greta Van Fleet side by side with the Struts, the Struts are a more interesting band. But there's a reason that Greta Van Fleet is resonating with the younger audience. They crave Led Zeppelin, let's face it. Yeah. And, you know, they, they that era of music is, you know, eternal. And it's just, you know, that's yeah. what uh, so many of my writers, you know, are young women obsessed with they want to sleep with, you know, Jimmy Page. I've had people mm. write to me, you know, teenagers and say, how can I get him? You know, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. How about that? I got to work with, I got to work with Jimmy Page because when I was the pub, the longtime publicist, not now for the Black Crows, uh-huh. um, Jimmy Page and the Black Crows recorded an album together and at the Greek theater and they tore, they did a few tour dates huh. behind it. And I got to be in a hotel room for two days with Jimmy Page and, and Chris and Rich of the Crows right. for press interviews, everything from ordering lunch. And then one, <laughs> and then afterwards, I remember we went to, I think, Shun Lee on the west side, the Ch- uh, big Chinese right. restaurant. Right. Yes, I remember. And the Shun bill was Lee. really expensive. I happily picked the bill up yeah. and I didn't charge it back to anyone. So I could say... I paid for Jimmy Page and the Black Roses dinner tonight. Well, Jimmy Page has been known as a bit of a tightwad, so he was probably very happy that uh, you picked that. Bill well, I just up. think he comes from you come from an you come from an era of rock royalty where they should not have to yes, pay for dinner. He never, he never had cash. They never had money. Right. You know, back then, no one they didn't need it. It's true. So, how did you find him? How, uh, what year was that? Um, I think maybe it was '97. So or, no, no, the early 2000s, I think that was. Was he still that, ele- he, he has this elegant mystery about him that he yeah. really makes sure to maintain. Did I you see that? Uh, no, because we were hanging out in the hotel room. So sometimes like there'd be a break in the schedule. And I remember we were we were sitting there playing like games on the phone because the phones were new. <laughs> and it was just crazy stuff that I didn't... <laughs> I know the whole veil of you know the Jimmy Page mystery. I didn't even, I didn't get a chance to experience. It was just like <laughs> we're here to work and let's okay, just get it done. Good. Kind of thing. Well, then and it maybe... was really funny. It yeah. was it was really funny. And I think you know being with Chris Robinson, especially Chris is really funny. Chris could be a comic, um, and he loves. And when I handled the crows, Chris would always talk about which comics he loved. Mm. So I got to uh, 
experience that side of Jimmy Page. Well, they may have brought that out in him too. Yes. Yeah, the oh. humorous part. Well, and he, uh, maybe he felt like he was in a, in a band again to a certain yes, degree. Yes, yes. You know, he he unfortunately, unlike Robert Plant, who has expanded mm. musically through all these years, Jimmy is sort of stuck. That that's how I see it anyway. So, <laughs> well. You know, and a lot of people did not like Jimmy Page's band, The Firm, with Paul Rogers. I saw it. It was okay. And I love Paul Rogers' voice. Yeah. Oh, my God. I saw I loved Paul Free. Rogers a year and a half ago. His voice sounded as great as it ever did. And yeah. I was blown away because it's very rare that you will see an artist in the late 60s or even 70. And he had the like range. I, I was... I was blown away. You know who else sings like they used to? Even better, Michael DeBar. Well, I, he is such an amazing singer. Huge voice. You know, he's still playing all over the place. It's so awesome. I remember I saw him at the Three Clubs uh, yes, in Hollywood yes. a few years ago. And very intense, vocal, ferocious, yes, in fine form. Just incredible. And he's a DJ. Very, very successful one on uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage. I always like to plug my ex-husband. He's the best ex-husband ever. And one of the, uh, not only funny, but warm. Oh my God, his, so witty. Look his, out. His wit, in fact, you know, we did, you know, the PR for Michael's, uh, la his last album, the one that was produced by Bob Rose. Oh gosh, yes, so oh we boy. Did the, we did the PR for that. and uh, His quips and all that. Yes. Oh, good God. Uh, in fact, Michael was the first person who called me on a Sunday morning back in 87 to say Andy Warhol just died. Oh, really? So he was like, I remember he was my first, like, first that's how, how I found interesting. out. We always remember Michelle Meyer was the f person who told me that Graham died, that John Lennon died, and that Elvis died. Michelle Meyer. Yeah. She was always right on it. Those are special moments, and this is also uh, this we is remember pre it. pre internet. Yes, I know. Of course, they were phone calls. How we got these oh, that horrible news? <laughs> really, you know, that's just totally insane. So, um, yeah. So um, the whole thing about <clears throat> you know publicity, people people will ask me how do, you know how do you get into be, uh, being a publicist? I would say to people, first thing to do is start your own website. And start running reviews. Go out and mm. see shows. That's how I mm. did it. But yeah. there was I couldn't do that. So I just sent my piece on Lou Reed to a local magazine. But you have the ability. Yeah, now it's easier to certainly be seen and heard on the, on the internet, yeah. of course. If someone was coming in for a job to be a publicist in my company and said, oh, I already have a website. I go out and cover shows. I write mm. about them. They would, in my mind, if I like them, they would already go to the front of the bus in terms of consideration yeah. because uh -huh. you have to be, you have to have a strong sense of self uh, to be a publicist. Not only, you know, you're going to be talking to some influential writers who've heard it and seen it all. Are yeah. you going to hold your own in a conversation or can you write an email that's not going to be insulting? Yeah. I, t I always tell my publicists, yeah. never go backstage and tell a band, your show is amazing. Your show is incredible. Those are words oh. that... DJs say okay that's good to know I'll never do that again <laughs> I go back and I make sure that if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be granted a uh, time with an artist I will say I thought you're and if I believe it that I thought your show was really distinctive and compelling you rearrange songs and I think people got to got to hear different shades of it 
if you start talking like that, an artist will not ask you to give you the, give the look to the road manager to right. like bring in the next person. <laughs> they ah, want to hear what you have to yes. say. Well, of course, that's their art. And if you really have been listening right. and have a good vocabulary, right. yeah, that and, sounds wonderful, Mitch. I'm going to take that to heart. And in fact, it's in the almost famous movie where Cameron Crowe goes goes backstage and they want to hear him talk. Uh-huh. The band. Uh, well, he that, knows as uh, yeah that yeah. he knew. So yeah. that's how he got their attention. He starts talking about them. But I was just found if you want to tell somebody that I thought uh, the show really raised the expectation of the audience. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest. There are times where maybe I didn't have the right adjective to say, so I told a drummer, and if I did feel it, I was like, I I said like I thought your drumming was volcanic tonight. <laughs> You know, uh, yes, that's a good one for even, John Bonham or somebody yes. like him. And I just, you know, like, Volcanic. what do you tell the drummer if they're not a singer or a writer? So I would say it was totally <laughs> volcanic. One of my favorite drummers, Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols. Yes, love that him. drum part that launches Holiday in the Sun uh-huh. is just one of like it sounds like machine guns going off. It's just so uh-huh. exhilarating. And I remember I told when we handled the pistols, I told that to Paul Cook. I said, <laughs> I, I am like de- I'm a deep admirer of what you do and like the parts and how you fire up choruses, why it sounds a certain way. And Holidays in the Sun could never be that same song without your, mm. you know, machine gun part. Oh, wonderful. And I remember when I saw them play it, when they played LA, they did uh, Universal Amphitheater and the next yep. night they did the Palladium. Yeah. And I remember after the show, Paul Cook comes over to me and goes, you know, I thought about you last last night before I played the drum part in, Hol- wow. in Holidays in the Sun. I almost passed I out. Wow. I almost passed out. It was... <laughs> What, That's for me, a wonderful compliment, reverse compliment or double compliment of something. Because he amazing. meant, he, I knew that he heard what I yes. said. And most artists are not truly validated by the people around them because you're dealing in a business. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, you yeah. know, it's a publicist. You can like meet a band and go, oh, I think you're, you know, you're fabulous. I would never <laughs> say that to an artist. <laughs> I would, ne- I, I would. S- These are good tips, people. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically, if you happen to be at a restaurant and you see an artist sitting there and you're going to walk up and say hi, you may really think about what you're going to say before you Mm -hmm. start the conversation. Because if you take it a certain way, you might get asked to sit at the table. Okay. Can happen. Boy, that's a real amazing thing to contemplate people out there. (laughs) Because when, when I see someone, I'm like with Prince. I was just so dumbfounded and flipped out to be in his presence right. that I just said, I love you. That's what I usually yeah. do. <laughs> so I need to think it out better. Thank you, Mitch. Thank well, you. But I, yeah, although in your case, you know, you, you know, you have royalty. So I think that if you do say something like that, I think that people see it as charming and, and, it, and it does mean something. Oh, thank you, Mitch. You're, I've got to tell you something else, though. My favorite drum... Uh-huh. moment you made me think of it is let me stand next to her fire mitch mitchell's drumming oh, in that song okay yes. is that the best thing on earth over and over and over again to where you can't hardly stand it that's my favorite it's remarkable you know music i mean the lyric of course is always going to drive a song but the music yeah. i saw the love and spoonful reunion yeah i um, was in vegas or i would have been there and what was really amazing about it was that john sebastian 
with the two other members, uh, Steve Boone and Joe Butler. Yes, but John ba- Sebastian, he, before they played it. Summer in the City, he talked about the creation of the song and the riff. Mm. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Yes. And it's a very complicated riff. And it, it, it's not the usual rock and roll four on a four, you know, the four on the four beat. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. And he talked about it. And then when they play it, it's like, oh my God. That's why it stands out from yes. everything. To this day, oh. that song come on the radio in three seconds it gives me chills it's still startling yeah i just got chills right now from thinking about that song so that's how we are man yeah so renee and i (laughs) went to that and i don't have i don't do the publicity for anything but i'm I'm such a fan of music i'm so happy to say that i think in the last six years i've seen the buffalo springfield reunion at the wiltern Mm -hmm. i saw the birds reunion at the ryman and i saw the love and spoonful just the Uh, other night oh it's so great i saw the birds it was How about that? Oh, Lord have mercy. Too good. Like, growing up in New York City, the Love and Spoonful were our birds in Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, yeah, And I didn't even see the Spoonful, but when they came on the radio, you knew they were a New York band, they came from Greenwich Village, Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were able to command number one songs. um, Yeah. Just great. John Sebastian. Great songwriter. Incredible songwriter. And John Sebastian was also saying on stage, he goes, one of the things with the Spoonful, they always wanted to make every single sound completely different than the one before. And you start thinking about it and you go, oh, that's, there is that element there where there those songs like Nashville Cats Mm. to Darling Be Home Soon to Summer in the City. Oh God, do I love that. And Daydream too. Yeah. These songs are I loved them. Loved and them. so, yeah. So I, I live inside of music. Uh, Is that the last show you've seen? Yes. I was going to ask you the most recent show. Yes. Okay, good. And your first was, do you remember your very first show? Mine was the fucking Beatles. Okay. Oh, well, <laughs> mine wasn't the Beatles, but it would have been any one of those bands that I mentioned that uh-huh. I saw in the Catskills. Yeah, you said, yeah the real Coasters, early. Oh, Drifters, right. Shirelles. That was excellent. Too. The Shirelles. Oh, my right. God. And that was that was amazing. And then the first, I'm trying to think, was probably the Fillmore East. So mm. I buy tickets for the show. I was a big fan of Mott the Hoople. And this mm. is before they're even Bowieized. The mm. hit was at the yeah. time Rock and Roll Queen, uh-huh. whose riff is so identical to Bitch by the Stones. Uh. If you play them side by side, uh. it's like wow. It's real. It's a fascinating to put those songs side by side. So <laughs> okay. the head, but the headliner was free. Oh, but okay. great. Free didn't play. Their visas were denied. So they put in Delaney and Bonnie. Oh, which I love them. So, I saw them so many times. They opened for the burritos and vice versa yeah. all the time. So I saw. How about her voice? Oh, Lord. We could go on and on, Mitch, but I think our time is. Oh, uh, uh, I uh, just Eric Clapton was not <laughs> on stage that night, but it was still Delaney and Bonnie. Uh-huh. And so the bill was Mandrel. They were a Santana-like band from New York City, mm-hmm. Mott the Hoople, and then Delaney and Bonnie. What a great night of yes. music. Yes, <laughs> uh, your first night. Oh, so wonderful. Well, thank you for chatting. Well, we could probably for having me chat here. for a lot I, oh, longer. I could go yeah. for days. Yes. <laughs> With you for days. I mean, God, you were at Altamont. Yes, I was. Yes. Yes, I was. And you've written about it so compellingly. So thank you. I have, I have a please kill me column about Altima. Yes, that's my most read one. It's like 20,000 or something readers. It's pretty awesome. But thank you, Mitch. I love you very dearly. Give my you. love to Renee. I shall indeed. The most unique humans in the world. Thank You're you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 
the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. But at night it's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on and dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be all right. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer. Wasn't Mitch just amazing? And here's my thought for the day. Don't ever go backstage after a show and tell a band that they were amazing or incredible. That's something I learned from Mitch today, so that's my thought for the day. But um, we're going to have Mitch back because he has so much more to tell. Can you imagine working with those people all those years and getting all chummy with them and going to Christmas parties and Thanksgiving at Tom Petty's house? So anyway, we're going to hear more from him. And I thank you all for listening. And please, you know, find out all about me at PamelaDaybar.com. Mwah! When I need good loving, I always come home to you. You free my life. Time of the blues. been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts find us on facebook at facebook.com backslash pantheon podcasts rock and roll archaeology on instagram and pantheon pods on twitter January 1978, a 19-year-old singer-songwriter has released her debut single. Those notes you just heard were the first notes of music that the world ever heard from a young British woman. And with that debut song, she influenced a whole new generation of female singers and showed what women in music could really do. Kate Bush. Hi, I'm Cecily, your host of the podcast Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. In this podcast, I'm discussing the history and story of every song that Kate Bush has ever produced in order, album by album. And every episode features a fan or two talking about why they love that song so much. We talk about not just the big hits. but also the B-sides and her collaborations. So come 
join me on a journey through the extensive catalog of the one and only Kate Bush. Available now wherever you get your podcasts and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.